You're about to listen to a Second City Works presentation brought to you in partnership with WGN Radio. Subscribe on your favorite podcast streaming platform or listen on WGNRadio.com and be sure to share. The Second City is a world famous comedy theater and it got so famous because it has produced generation after generation of comedy superstars. That didn't happen by magic. Second City's improvisational pedagogy fuels great performance and the same practices that have made stars of everyone from Bill Murray to Tina Fey can be applied for success offstage, at work, at home, and in the world. I'm Kelly Leonard, Vice President of Creative Strategy, Innovation, and Business Development at The Second City. This podcast is about collaborative conversations, discovering connections, and building a better future. This is Getting to Yes And. You want to come see us talk live on the Getting to Yes And podcast? Well, I'm going to be talking to Keegan-Michael Key, Second City alum, and L. Key about their new book, The History of Sketch Comedy, A Journey Through the Art and Craft of Humor, on October 5th at 7 p.m., the Francis Parker School. This is part of the Chicago Humanities Festival. If you want to get tickets, go to chicagohumanities.org. Today's podcast is with Jeffrey Sweet. Uh, As a playwright, Jeff's plays include Porch, The Value of Names, and Routed, and they've been presented off-Broadway, internationally, and in a variety of regional and developmental theaters. His American Enterprises won the American Theater Critics Association Award for Playwriting. His book for the musical What About Love won the Outer Critics Circle Award, and he's the author of the book and co-author with composer Melissa Manchester of the lyrics for the musical I Sent a Letter to My Love. Today we talk about his book, Something Wonderful Right Away, which is an oral history of the Second City. It was originally published in 1978, and it's now out in a new edition that includes interviews with both Viola Spolin and Keegan-Michael Key. I hope you enjoy this podcast. Unsaid. Days can't be counted by the time to rent. Tomorrow's just another like the one that comes next. The corner of the highway that leads to the job at the desk by the boss with the elegant watch. The tick of the clock and the tick of the clock mark the moments till the ticking stops. Jeffrey Sweet, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure. It's a pleasure. Uh, it was actually a real treat to revisit this book. And I hadn't read it in full since probably the early 1990s, was, was my guess. Um, and I was reminded of something Bernie Sollins once told me about Second City. He said, quote, once you've seen all the shows at Second City, you've seen one of them, end quote. And what I took from that line, and actually from the content of your book, is that same the same arguments, the same joy, the same relevance, that a Second City actor from 1959 had maps quite neatly onto a Second City actor in 2023. I mean, almost down to the language of the grievance or grievances are things that I have heard in the last two weeks. I'm sure. <laughs> Does that? I imagine that doesn't surprise you based on on your your work with these people and through the years. No, it doesn't surprise me at all. But it's. Uh... Um, I mean, it's, it's got something to do with the place of the actor in society and it's got a, 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 and I think one of the things that second city does that a lot of other theater actors uh, don't have the opportunity to do is second city takes the actor back to the position of being a kind of de facto journalist Mm. uh, responding immediately to what's going on in the world. Um, 
I, I can't remember if I put it in the book or not, but years ago I had a conversation with um, the old Western writer, Louis L'Amour, and uh, he was talking about how uh, Native Americans, when they came back from uh, a hunt or uh, a battle, knew that it was part of their responsibility to get up in front of their community. They didn't have any written language, so they weren't going to, you know, send out a newsletter. They'd get up in front of their community and they would reenact uh, the hunt or the battle. And they'd say to a friend, okay, you be the buffalo. And, you know, they'd do mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, we've been told for years in our history of theater courses that theater wasn't connected to the church. I think theater is connected to journalism. Mm. That uh, that uh, the actor was society's original journalist. I got. Mm. I'm going to get up and tell you a story that you should know because you're part of this community. Yeah, a and, reflection. A reflection of the human condition. Yeah, and, no, and in real time. That, but that's one of the things that that is really incredibly valuable about this uh, this this form and this format is whatever happened during the day can be reflected on the stage at night, uh, and reflected through a critical and satiric sensibility that night. Um, yeah. And you can't really do that with series television because it takes you know what six weeks to get an episode ready, and it takes two years to get a movie ready, and even you know if you're working very very fast off off Broadway, you know. Uh, you still have to bribe somebody to use the back room. <laughs> you know? Well, it's funny about it's. I had this conversation with my son the other night because he had he had rewatched the West Wing and was sort of jonesing for that feel. So he had never seen the newsroom, and he started watching that. And I'm like, here's the thing: what Sorkin did was take a event that had already happened and then use that to make his characters omniscient inside. It is a cheat. It is not what's actually happening. Yeah. Brilliant in some respects, but not brilliant enough to have that show actually last. <laughs> yeah, no. They, well, I, 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 I could make a couple of Sorkin comments, but I will not. I admire much of what he does, and sometimes he just goes, "You go, what? Yes. What are you doing?" That's right. Well, in, in many ways, we that's that's something that uh, I think you know, in many of our greatest artists that we do that with. I, I there's an O'Neill thing here and there where you're like, "What did you do?" Yeah, well, we have to remember that those people were embedded in their times and had the perspective and prejudices of their times. Sometimes they transcended those moments and were, you know, saw ahead. But sometimes you take a look and you go, you cannot revive the front page with some of the racist language intact today. You just For can't. sure. Yeah. yeah, no, no, no. This is, this is, I mean, this is the difficulty of... You know, we're we're turning 65 next year, and we went through a, a real reckoning here not that long ago. And uh, I and, and and many of the other folks here had to sort of wrestle with a lot of a lot of truths that were important that that I think are are important for us to hear, not just in Second City, but in the broader cultural scope that we live in, the world of theater, but beyond. Mm-hmm. And the, and then other things of recognizing of like, yeah, and. Things were different. There, there are scenes in Pinata Full of Bees in 1995 and words that we cannot say that were not problematic when we were saying them in 1995. Yeah, I, I, in the conversation I had with Keegan, Keegan was thinking about, oh, what, th- what scenes did I do in Detroit that I couldn't do today? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, you write in the book, too, to, to this point, quote, if one of the functions of art is to find reason and chaos, then the Second City tended to be a form for initial assessment of the damages. Yeah. Um, lovely. Uh, and and, and, and um, a burden <laughs> in some regard, if we're doing it right. Yeah, but there's also the tension between uh, what Viola Spolin championed, which was spontaneity, and... Uh, 
making certain you don't say something that gets you in trouble with uh, HR. You can't do yeah. both. <laughs> you really yeah. can't do both. You know, I mean, so, you know, you, 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 you have to, you have to simultaneously be able to tap into the spontaneous and also know, oh, I better not go there. Yeah. I think it might benefit the audience a little bit uh, to give them the sort of important cast of characters. Um, and, for, and for me, that, of course, Viola uh, Spolin, David Shepard, Paul Sills, Bernie Sollins, um, Howard Alk, one of the, one of the founding uh, fathers of Second City, yeah. less known, I think. But let's start with Viola, because, I mean, this is this is someone who Avery Schreiber and others have called the mother of improvisation. You know, that book is still in print at Northwestern University Press. Um, and I will just tell you from from my experience at Second City, uh, recognizing when we lost our way um, here, and I think we have been in positions where we've lost our way creatively, um, it, it is realizing that, oh, somehow Spolin fell out of the curriculum. Uh. And when we have refound our way, and I speak from recent experience, it comes from Spolin being back in the curriculum. Mm. And I mean this both literally and figuratively. It's funny because, you know, Del Close, uh, and for those people who don't know who Del Close was, Del was an important uh, director and player um, and uh, a legend of his own creation. Uh, <laughs> but uh, <clears throat> Dell used to badmouth Viola sort of casually in some yeah. of the workshops and classes. And then I remember running into him one day and I, you know, he was sort of looking a little down the mouth. I said, what, what, what's wrong? He says, Oh man. He said, I was, I was rereading Viola last night and she was really there ahead of all of us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, a, a moment of humility that he'd gone back and all right, I can, I can, you know, give her grief because, you know, she was working with kids and, and, and Dell, you know, really loved kids. Uh, <laughs> Not. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, but, you know, the, the honesty of when he went back and looked at it as much as he, uh, as much as he personally sometimes clashed with Viola, he, he granted her uh, the first place in the, uh, in the beginning of the uh, formulation of what this stuff is. Yeah. Part of what's fascinating to me is, you know, she wanted to be an actress mm-hmm. and um, she went to New York and she was hanging around with the group theater, uh, people taking classes there and uh, uh, nobody put her on stage. People liked her, but nobody put her on stage. And she came back to Chicago where she had studied with a woman named Neva Boyd and Neva Boyd had uh, uh, was connected with Northwestern University and was fascinated by games, uh, uh, international games, storytelling games, games that were not competitive, where there were points won or lost or where people claimed victory over each other, but games that were structures for play. And um, what Viola did was take that idea of playing games and invent new games uh, in order to address uh, directorial problems she had working with kids. She didn't want to bark orders at them. She didn't want to say, oh, you're all crowded over to one side of the stage. That doesn't look good. She wanted to say, uh, stage picture. And then people would mm-hmm. say, oh, and then they would adjust themselves. Um, so she, she was trying to be a director, but non-coercively. She was trying to propose uh, a technical challenge that the kids would focus on. And by focusing on that technical challenge, they would solve the problems themselves and also, because they had solved the problems themselves, the moments they created, they felt very proud of, and they were not reluctant to uh, put into final performance. 
So she did very little direct ordering of anybody. She just had this gift for saying, oh, there's something wrong here. I'm not going to order them to do this. What can I do that is in a play structure that if they follow the rules of that structure, the problem will be solved by them? Yeah. And, um, of course, her son, Paul Sills, <clears throat> literally grew up with this, you know, or, 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 sometimes as a baby on the bed listening to some of this stuff come in from the next room. And... Um, so he used some of these techniques when he was uh, directing plays at the University of Chicago. But we have to give credit uh, to a, a, a contrary character who was never satisfied and who, in a way, was uh, one of the most difficult people in the history of improv. We have to give credit to David Shepard. Mm-hmm. David Shepard was the Marxist son of a millionaire, which instantly sets up a few contradictions. Yes. <laughs> And he thought, you know, um, I, uh, I, I, he loved theater. And he thought everybody should have access to theater. And his early expression of this was to uh, put together a touring company of Moliere, which he toured through the Catskills, which instantly tells you a little something at a time when Catskills humor was Uncle Milty. Right. Trying, trying to do Moliere and the Catskills was not the smartest idea. Mm-hmm. Anyway, uh, he hitchhiked to Chicago. Um, stumbled onto the University of Chicago campus, um, saw that there was um, a, 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 a production directed by this guy, Paul Sills, went to see it. He liked what Sills was doing. And uh, he wanted to do um, a modern version of uh, the Commedia dell'arte, with people improvising from scenarios. Um, he wanted to do plays that were not about kings and queens and royalty and whatever. He wanted to do plays that about what was going on in the Chicago community. But, of course, nobody was writing those plays. So yeah. the only way you could get those stories on stage was to have somebody to write an outline. Um, and that meant that you had to improvise from an outline, which took you back to the Commedia dell'arte. And he recognized that Sills's uh, training at, uh, by his mother, the, the theater games, was the training for doing that. Right. And the first uh, several months of Compass was not sketch comedy. It was uh, long plays, some 45 minutes, an hour minutes long, that were developed improvisationally over a week based on uh, outlines that members of the company had written. And they were not necessarily funny. They, right. did, they did one evening based on uh, the execution of Private Slovak, hmm. which is not a funny story, you know. Nope an American soldier being shot by Eisenhower for desertion. Right. It's not a funny story. Mm. (laughs) So, but um, what happened was uh, uh, the guy who was running the bar at the compass said, you know, I could sell another drink if the show were longer. Mm. And figure out a way to make the show longer. And somebody, I have no idea who it was said, well, we're improvising based on text. Maybe we could improvise based on audience suggestion. And so that's how the grand tradition of of improvising based on audience suggestion got started out of the high uh, objective of selling another beer, you know. Which really really says something that I think everyone needs to take a moment and recognize. Yeah. And and then it turned out that the shorter forms were were more popular than the longer forms. forms Basically disappeared and people became uh, addicted to the shorter forms. And additionally, early on, uh, there were there was no repetition of scenes. Uh, And then somewhere along the line, the story goes, uh, somebody in the audience came in, uh, uh, 
and, and said to Nicholson, may I hear you did a great scene last week about two teenagers in the car. Are you going to do that again tonight? And Elaine said, we, we don't repeat scenes. And Mike said, why not? Mm-hmm. Why don't we, re- why don't we polish? Why don't we take these things that we've developed and polished and make them gems? And uh, people started, you know, polishing scenes. And that became the basis of uh, when the uh, compass morphed into second city, that became the basis of the first two acts of Second City, and then the third act would uh, would be going back to uh, getting suggestions from the audience, uh, and a lot of the scenes that came out of suggestions from the audience would later be polished and uh, put into uh, the first two acts when the next edition of the review came. But uh, you, I, you probably know this, and it's probably in the book, but... Um, uh, Paul and, uh, and and Bernie and Howard originally wanted to call uh, call Second City the Compass again, yeah. And, and David Shepard didn't want to uh, didn't want to let them use the name. Uh, uh, yet another decision that he came to regret. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But uh, they were you know looking around for a name, and they remembered this insulting article in the New Yorker by A. J. Liebling that had called Chicago uh, a second-rate town. Uh, you know. The piece was called The Second City, and it was a way for them to, uh, you know, give the finger to A.J. Liebling. Liebling, shortly before he died, once said that probably the only thing he would be remembered for was for having inadvertently named a nightclub, which, uh, which proved that he still didn't get it. Because still didn't get it. It's not still a nightclub. It. It's a theater. That's fine. That's fine. Because I mean, uh, he was a great writer, but he got sure. that. He got that wrong. There's so there's so much to unpack here. Uh, where do I start? Here's where I want to start. <clears throat> um, so when I stopped producing in 2015, after writing my book, Yes And, I've really spent the seven, five, six, seven, eight years since then, my wife and I am, working a lot with scientists, first at the University of Chicago, uh, but, but then elsewhere. And a lot of this stemmed from Anne reading a book by Daniel Kahneman called Thinking Fast and Slow. And Kahneman being the father of behavioral science, and she's reading this thing going, this is our stuff. This is our stuff. This is our stuff. And, um, and indeed, you know, we end up working with Richard Thaler, the Nobel Prize winning economist who was a student of Kahneman's, who was like, wow, your stuff's our stuff. Um, but I actually, I, I want to tell you about this. Uh, during this period of exploration where we're trying to figure out, like, we think we're onto something, Anne stumbled across uh, a, I think it was, she was doing research and that a, a gentleman named Paul Ekman, who people might know, he was the basis for the Tim Roth character in the series Lie to Me. He's sort of an expert in reading faces and, and understanding when people are lying or telling the truth. That Ekman was at University of Chicago and may have had some affiliation. And I did, like I do, um, just sort of as a cold call. And we got him on the phone. And he was like, this is hilarious, because I'll tell you what, I, do, I knew all those guys. But uh, what happened was um, they were doing a show and they needed someone to run lights and I agreed to do it and I fell asleep in the booth. And so when it was time to turn out the lights, I, I was asleep. So they had someone else had to come over and I was fired. So, uh, but, but the interesting thing about the conversation is we were teasing this out and he said, yeah, look, I, we did not sit down and talk about how these ideas in what would become behavioral science uh, but we're touching on psychology and philosophy. And remember, at this point, like people like Martin Buber are at University of Chicago. This is not this, you know, Nibar at University of Chicago. Um, uh, but he did say, you know, we were drinking from the same water. And so what I think that is so interesting about Second City 
and the thing that you, when this was first published in 1978, I think you were in many ways sort of saying, hey, I think the roots of modern American theater are in front of us right here. And I would suggest that it's even more than theater. Yeah. Um, and, and, and that what we're talking about is the way we think our culture. And our culture, I think mo most people recognize, is far more important than um, maybe we conceived of before when captains of industry wanted to make you to think that, you know, making cars was the most important thing, mm. as opposed to the poetry of what it means to drive across America. Um, or, or what have you. So I guess I'm just curious in, in you sort of reviewing what you were swimming in, you know, you obviously knew it was important. You said it changed your life writing the book, but did you have the sense that you were onto the sort of bigger thing? Not initially. I, I, I had the crass desire. The main reason I wanted to write the book was I had the crass desire just to meet my heroes. Okay. You know, Fair. I just want to meet these people and have had to have substantive conversations with them. And it, and the book became um, deeper. And uh, I began to realize more consequential. The more I talked to people, uh, I got an education from, from those conversations an education about theater and education uh, to some degree about politics. Yeah. Uh, so uh, I didn't go to grad school. Writing the book was my grad school, mm -hmm. you know, because they kept, um, one person after another kept turning me on to something else I had to read. Um, I remember uh, um, Barbara Harris, uh, before she would uh, agree to being interviewed, she wanted to have a conversation with me to see if I had something in my head about besides show business and theater. Mm -hmm. and, and she, she wanted to talk politics and sociology, and she turned me on to a guy named Edward T. Hall. And mm -hmm. Edward T. Hall became one of the most important influences in my uh, writing and teaching life. Uh, because he was very interested in how, uh, in, in, in uh, nonverbal communication, how we use space with each other, how we use time with each other, how we even use temperature with each other. And he came up with concepts like high and low context communication. And I use that to teach how to write exposition that doesn't sound like exposition. Okay. So these people were constantly turning me on to other things because they had they were, I mean, not to insult show business people because I, I love them and I live among them and I'm, I, I am one of them to some degree, but they had interests outside of the theater and mm -hmm. they brought all those interests into the work and mm -hmm. part of the conversation. Uh, I'm sure you're aware of uh, that Alan Alda has endowed a, uh, mm -hmm. a center at, uh, at uh, 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 I guess it's a, is it Stony Brook? I think it's Stony it, Brook. Mm-hmm. Because he, uh, you know, he sees the value of scientists being able to talk to each other. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. Well, it's funny. I had him on the podcast and he had no idea that Second City was also venturing into all these different areas of working in the caregiving community, you know, and with political activists. And he's like, that hasn't stopped. Like that, didn't, that, that got picked up. I'm like, no, no, absolutely. And I don't think the thread ever went away from my, my experience. And, and, you know, I know one of the fu the funniest thing is when, when you talk about how Compass, they sort of realized, like, we just improvising these things, like, over, like, we can't just keep improvising. And I remember when we were conceiving of the idea of Pinata Full of Bees, this idea that we would do, we wanted to do something radical at Second City is 1995, and Adam McKay and Tom Janis and myself and Jim Zulovic and that, that whole cast, the idea was it was going to be improvised every night. Ooh. Literally, after one week, we're like, we cannot do this. <laughs> it's too hard. 
No, no, it's, uh, you know, and, and even the, you know, a couple of our greatest improvisers are TJ and Dave, Yep. but, but they can't do a, a month long run of improvising a new play every night. They'll do a run of four days and then, you know, sleep for a week. Yeah, exactly. You have to. And, and Anthony Holland talked about uh, that uh, when he was uh, in, in Second City in New York, that he had to quit because he was uh, exhausted. He was using up everything in his psyche in, in the improv sets. And he found that he was uh, just burning himself out. But mm-hmm. I mean, you, you, you can't do that. No, you know? it's, and, and that, but that says something about. Yeah, I, 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 I imagine you're going to agree with me this, that, that the, um, oh, I, this is how I'll frame this. Uh, t- uh, Tina Fey and Amy Poehler were just in town, and they did uh, th- three shows in Chicago. Actually, four shows, one outside of Chicago, three in Chicago. And they're doing a bit about how they meet uh, at uh, Second City and I.O., the former Improv Olympic. And they, they start to, uh, they do, uh, here's an example of uh, short-form improvisation. Here's an example of long-form improvisation. And you know what the difference is? No one cares. <laughs> and it was like a, a limited laugh, but it was a very hard laugh from those of us who were in the audience. And this is this old argument that goes around whether improvisation, it is, it is so in your book. It is, there are people like, no, it, it, it's a means to an end. It's not an art form. And other people are like, no, it is an art form. And I just come up with the thing of going, it doesn't matter. I, I like seeing uh, really good long-form improvisation, and the fact that it's not going to play on Broadway eight nights, eight nights a week does not invalidate my experience seeing it that one night. Oh, it's, it's sort of like, the if you remember the old commercial, is it a breath mint or a candy mint? It's both, both. It's both. <laughs> one. It's both. Let it be both. Okay, this is the other thing I want to say about Kahneman and then Viola. Yeah. So one of the things in Mike, when Michael Lewis wrote his book about uh, Tversky and Kahneman, one of the things that he discovered is that Danny Kahneman sees the world as a problem. And when you were able to publish your interview with Viola, which you weren't originally, so let's talk about that. Um, we note that she didn't even call them games. She says what she called them was problems. Yeah. Uh, and uh, I, I, I sometimes wonder if that's, uh, that was, uh, uh, Paul Sills's influence because he helped his mother on the book. He said, he, he said, I didn't write a word of it, but I, I, I was there, you know, mm-hmm. as she was writing and I'm sure that she bounced things uh, off of him. And yeah. he probably, I wouldn't be surprised if he said, well, let's, why don't we just call it something else? Yeah. I, I have no proof of that. Yeah. You know, and so why, why wouldn't she, okay. So you interviewed her for this book. This is, this is in the seventies yeah. and she wouldn't let you print the transcript. She wouldn't sign the release. No. And I, I said, oh, you saw me. We went over the transcript. We corrected it together. Why won't you let me print it? And she said, oh, Jeff, people have been making money off of me for years, and I'm drawing the line here. And I said, Viola, you are drawing the line. The <laughs> yeah, this is not. This didn't make your life. I said, I, I, the bank account wasn't. Yeah, yeah it's not, it's not going to make me a lot of money. You know, if I buy a yacht, it will be for my bathtub. You know, come yeah, on. yeah, yeah. But she, uh, no, she was adamant. She, and then some years later, I was seeing Sills and Company in L.A., and she came swooping over to me and hugged me, and she said, oh, honey, do you hate me? And I said, of course, I don't hate you. Sorry you're not in the book, but, you know, you are in the book. You're just not quoted directly. Yeah. And, and she gave me a kiss and swooped away, and after she died, uh, I, I, I got um, an envelope in the mail, and she had sent uh, sent me a picture as part mm-hmm. of the directive when... And then uh, 
there's a uh, there used to be a theater magazine for uh, theater mad high school kids called Dramatics, and I was writing yeah. a lot. And um, I proposed that we start a series of uh, major figures in the American theater th that weren't writers uh, that that kids should know about. And one of the, you know, uh, 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 Joe Papp, La Mama, uh, Ellen Stewart, uh, Harold Klurman, and so mm -hmm. forth. And, uh, I, I, of course, I was going to do one on uh, on Viola. And they um, they ran it, and they put Viola's picture on the cover of the magazine. And I got a call from Carol Sills, uh, Paul Sills' widow, uh, widow and um, um, Viola's uh, daughter-in-law. And she says, oh, Viola, a, color, a cover girl. She would have loved that. <laughs> um, and I said, well, you know, if I ever do another edition, you, you control the estate. Can I use this? And she said, of course. So okay. one of the driving forces behind my desire to do a second edition was to, uh, was to put her in the book because there were, I, I always thought there were a few missing chapters in the book and there's still a few missing chapters in the book. Sure. Uh, Elaine May you can't, you can't, none of us, can cover 65 years. I mean, this is, this is the weird thing. I'm sitting here. So it'll be my 35th anniversary here in October. Yeah. Um, and which is, which is longer than a, a lot of people. I, my wife's worked here 38, uh, coming October. So, but, but even then I can't even presume to understand everyone's experience or what it meant at the time. But, the getting getting at least a more comprehensive understanding of the founders, I think, is extraordinarily crucial to understanding what some people consider to be magic, and I think what what I often refer to as a practice. You know, in, in inside this work, which is why it perseveres, which is why it's become applicable outside of even the theater arts into so many different areas. Um, and that is it. And the fact that it came from, let's say, Viola and Paul, because I do think that that is the crucial duo there. Not really great communicators. No, I, I, it's, it's something that I said to Alan Alda and, and Alda. Did I say it to him or did he say it to me? Well, one of us said it was uh, that Viola and Paul, Paul were not you know, great at a party just chatting. So yeah. coming up with games gave you a structure through which to communicate. You know, uh, so it's it's that so that lack was a thing that they then a gift they they gave to all these people who have difficulty communicating. Yeah, but I also think that talking to the original people takes us back to first premises of why they thought at the time this kind of theater was necessary and what it did that no other theater before had done, and mm -hmm. then then you go on to well, okay, it's been going now for sixty five years or so. Um, and it's been imitated widely, sometimes well and sometimes really poorly. Mostly that. Yeah. Uh, so what is it doing now that still makes it necessary, given that there are all the imitations? You know, you sort of face sometimes the problem that Neil Simon faced. Neil Simon started writing a kind of comedy that was uh, funnier than really the comedies that had come before on Broadway. And mm -hmm. by... What he did, he trained a generation of comedy writers to then write brilliantly for the Mary Tyler Moore Show and MASH and, all, and Cheers and all these others. Yeah. Uh, and you could stay home and watch comedy as good as Neil Simon without paying Broadway prices. Mm -hmm. So on some level, he almost made himself obsolete because people said, 
why do I have to pay however much a uh, orchestra seat was in those days when on Saturday night on CBS, I can see a lineup and comedy that, you know, is extraordinary. Yeah. So he sort of made himself obsolete. He taught people to do what he did and then they became masters of what he did and, uh, and uh, sort of made him, I mean, he never became truly obsolete, but he fell out of favor partially because other people had learned from him. That's right. And uh, so that's one of the challenges that the Second City as an institution uh, faces is, uh, you know, it has to keep exploring and it, ha- it has to keep reaffirming, re- reaffirming. And I think what you were saying about going back to Viola, I think mm-hmm. a lot of it is going back to first principles. Mm-hmm. And I think the, the, Accidentally, the book ended at what I think was a hinge moment in Second City's life, which was it ended with um, the original book ended with uh, the conversation with Gilda Radner. Yep. Of course, went to SNL. And as SNL went on, Second City became famous as being a feeder for SNL. and And that affected some of what the audience wanted when they came to Second City and some of what the actors wanted when they came to Second City. For sure. They were looking for something that would help propel them to SNL. Yeah, yeah. The people, uh, the people before that had no idea that that's that's how the material, how this was going to be exploited, and they went off and became, you know, major uh, serious actors, writers, and directors, or had comedy careers. Yeah. But SNL, there was uh, all of a sudden there was this like big Hollywood sign rising over the horizon, <laughs> and people people said, "Oh, this is a step to that." And I prefer Second City when people don't think it's a, set, a step to something. It's its own thing, and let's honor it and do the work that you can only do there. Yeah, I have a few thoughts. One, even beyond SNL, comedy comedians as rock stars was Belushi and Aykroyd. There, there's just they, they, they nothing like that existed where these two artists were known across mediums. They're winning Grammy awards. They're selling out tours. They're on a television show. And oh, they make a blockbuster movie. I mean, that just didn't, you know. And then I, I, one exception: Martin and Lewis. Martin and Lewis being the what? Yeah, absolutely the one exception. Who, who again, culturally were across the zeitgeist. Um, they weren't rock stars though. Uh, the, the rock star culture, I don't think, existed in the, in the sense that it did with the with the '70s and '80s and where things were going. All that to be saying, yeah. I think that I think the key that has never gone away <clears throat> is what you can't experience in front of a television, in front of a screen, and to a degree in Broadway is uh, being part of that a, a comedy theater being made as a conversation with you. The duality of, of the experience that this isn't a monologue, monologue; it's a dialogue between audience and, and actor, and that and, that, and that's why so many of these folks talk about the, this being the best time in their lives because as artists, they were sculpting and creating with their the, the recipients of of their art. Not even I think calling them recipients is not fair because you just don't. Bernie knew this actually. I think Bernie maybe knew this and could articulate in a way that I don't think Paul could or, or Viola could which is that, that importance of, of the audience and the contract that we've got as performer to audience. And we should talk about Bernie. Cause I don't think we mentioned him in the first group. Yeah. Uh, well, um, Bernie was uh, manufacturing tape recorders, but was fascinated by, uh, by theater. And uh, when, uh, you know, Paul, Paul sort of looked around, you, you remember after compass closed, Paul for a while was 
uh, managing a nightclub. What was it? The Gate of Horn? Gate of Horn. Yeah. Yeah. By the way, do you do you, do you remember that? Was it the Coen Brothers movie about the the the, the almost Bob Dylan character? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Do you, do you remember he went to Chicago? Do you, mm-hmm. do you audition? Do you remember where he auditioned? No, where would he audition? Gate of Horn. I thought. Um, Paul, I thought Paul's in the other room. Yeah, uh, Llewellyn Davis. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, um, but. Uh, <laughs> You know, Paul had picked up some stuff from uh, from managing a nightclub, and he also was looking at, oh, Nichols and May and Shelley Berman were doing very well, and they were doing very well with very smart comedy. It was not pandering comedy. They, yeah. had, they had changed the tone of American comedy. Um, and he thought, oh, well, this is in the air. Maybe a, a, a more disciplined version of Compass would work, but he didn't have any money, and, mm-hmm. and Bernie had money, you yeah. know? And uh, so it was, you know, and he had some idealism and it also didn't really cost all that much. I mean, I'm sure that, you know, eight or ten thousand dollars in those days is is what today, you know, a few hundred thousand dollars. But even today, a few hundred thousand dollars is not very much to start a major theater. So uh, but Bernie, Bernie started off basically as the money and numbers guy. And uh, but he was way smarter than that or wiser than that. And he learned and he learned to the point where he became quite a good director himself. Uh, and he also, um, I don't know if he consciously knew this or, or whether he just said, well, this, this is the way it is. But it's axiomatic that whoever is the boss inevitably gets the brunt of resentment from anybody else in the organization. I'm well acquainted with this. <laughs> I mean, I don't know if you know this. You know my wife, Christine Niven. And uh, uh, Christine at one point said, uh, you know, I love improvisation. I want to stay with great improvisers. I'm going to start an improv summer camp. And she got, you know, uh, Michael Gelman and Gary Austin, and a lot of other people, so that every summer for 17 years, we would rent a place in the Catskills and we would have this this blast. Yep. And instantly these people whom she had hired, Gelman and Austin, not me because I was married to her, but they started looking at her as the boss. Uh-huh. And she said, no, I'm just trying to solve problems so you can do what you do. But they would bring, you know, their problems and their resentments to the boss. Yeah. And it became very difficult for her to take classes with people who thought of her as, you know, the muscle, the boss. Uh-huh. uh-huh. Kind that, of it doesn't matter. I mean, you know, uh, yeah. someone once said, of, of course, there are problems. The stakes are so low. Yeah. <laughs> it doesn't matter where you go. Yeah. So anybody who's doing a theater that to some degree is predicated on uh, in uh, challenging power, well, how is power manifested in, in the theater? It's your producer. Yeah. <laughs> so the same things that brought you into the theater to do satire, you're going to, you know, give automatically give greased, grief to uh, to the producer who's helping you do this stuff. You know, I, I, one of my favorite stories, which I don't go into in, in great detail, but was uh, Theodore J. Flicker looked around in uh, uh, the early 60s and said one of the biggest social issues is, you know, the, the race issue. And improv hasn't uh, hasn't addressed that. So I'm going to start a theater uh, with uh, with black improvisers. And he hired amazing people. Mm-hmm. You know, Diana Sands, Godfrey Cambridge and uh, Al Freeman Jr. And two white players to, you know, be the the thing that they were reacting against to some degree. And Godfrey Cambridge, you know, was a big, fr- a great friend of, of Flickers. As soon as Flicker became the boss, 
Cambridge made Flicker's life miserable. Yeah, yeah. You know? And then finally, when Flicker gave up the theater and went to make back, went on to direct movies, he hired Godfrey Cambridge to be in the movies because he just recognized this is just the function of being the boss as you become the, uh, uh, you, 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 especially if you're dealing with people who are by definition iconoclasts. They're gonna- right. You, you get a record. So, so for me, it was that recognition of like, well, I don't know that I can be friends with these people, which sucks, but I'm going to accept that. Uh, because that was not the case. You know, when I was a, a young person working here, I was friends with these folks. We were the same age. And, and, and I early on in my career, I still tried to keep that up. And at a certain point, I'm like, this is not going to work. Then you have to sort of develop this thick skin. And I think the thing that's interesting about Bernie, too, because uh, you have some people talk about Bernie being a terrible businessman, <laughs> and you have other people talk about him being an incredible businessman. I don't know what was conscious or not conscious on his part. Here's what I do know, is that he could have... And I, I think, I don't know if it's Bill Alton or Alan, w- w- one of the folks that you interviewed talks about the fact that he could have commercialized, no, it was Bob, Bob Klein, and I get why he did this, talks about the fact that he could have commercialized this thing f- far sooner in a much greater way to the extent that m- my group has. And I'm not going to say it's me, it's uh, Andrew owned it and uh, you know other folks now, but, but you know what? I don't think it would have really worked in the way that it does now had Bernie had more of that kind of ambition. He wasn't interested in starting the Second City ETC. He wasn't interested in the Second City Touring Company or a training center. And 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 I say thank God because in many ways it allowed us just to really marinate in the work much longer so that by the time we were ready to put these things and make them happen, they really came with a lot of thought, a lot of experience, a lot of practice that allowed us to have all these divisions and these 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 things work in concert organically and not fight with the main stage. Overreach is a big problem. I, as you probably are aware, undoubtedly are aware, the home theater that I belong to for years, Victory Gardens, has died. Yep. My theory is that it didn't just die. It died after we won the Tony Award and the board said, let's move to a bigger space. And mm. I pleaded with them not to do it. I said, "This is these are new plays by unknown writers. And on Tuesday, you cannot fill 300 seats. With well, another- and then also trying to fire the you know managing director and artistic director. That was a problem, too. Yeah. But they thought that they were going to be the new Steppenwolf. And Steppenwolf, of course, had real you know, stars, people that people saw on in movies and TV, and they could sell shows that way. We were just doing original plays. And I said, this is, you, you, I, I predicted that it was going to damage the theater. And uh, the overreach did indeed, I think, ultimately uh, destroy the theater. The The imperative of um, of trying to fill 300 seats instead of filling 200 seats really made that difference. But if you look at the history of, of theaters that have won the Tony Award, there's a remarkably high percentage of those theaters don't exist anymore because they went for overreach when they won the Tony. Wow, really? Success was in fact a, a dangerous for them. I drive by I drive by Victory Gardens every day coming yeah. to work, and it you know, and I was intimately involved in the when when they tried to oust the original with Dennis and Marcy who were there. Um, uh, Joy Sloan, who was here at Second City at the time, was like help, and I was I was actually head uh, 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 board chair at the League of Chicago Theaters. So 
we in the community were like, oh, we're going to add our voice to this thing. And so I think it became very difficult when you had the heads of Goodman and Steppenwolf and Second City and all these places being like, you're making a crucial mistake, at least in this regard. Um, and, and the, and the, the move, I don't know. I mean, I, you know, I know I was just talking to some colleagues here. I don't know if you know this, but, uh, about a decade, maybe longer ago, they were doing a new development, um, down North Avenue, just past Clybourne called new city. And they had carved out a place for second city to move. And it's right. It would be right next to where the Arclight movie theater was. And, um, the deciding vote on this as we were doing it around a leadership meeting was uh, Tom Yorton, myself, who was my co-author, and Yes And, who were in the corporate division at the time. We're like, no, absolutely not. You don't move Wrigley Field um, or you don't move the Cubs out of Wrigley Field or whatever. And we didn't go. And thank God, because it, it is that is a it's right near where I.O. is and uh, now. And it's just it's harder. And, and, you know, so our expansion has been careful and we're coming to Brooklyn. I mean, this is. Oh, I don't think you know this story, but Andrew at one point took me to lunch and said, you live in New York. We're thinking of coming to New York. You know, where should where should we be? You know, where in Manhattan should we be? And I said, not Manhattan. Not Manhattan. I said, Brooklyn. I said, yeah. you know, there's, there's a, a growing audience for it in, in Brooklyn. And there won't be as much competition. Plus, you know, you're not second city if you're on the first if you're in the first. Uh, no. No, that was that was always my concern about the, uh, New York is that we're like we're the second city for a reason, and so oh. I'm and, and and let's talk a little bit about the history because I think it's fascinating that I, I think what people need to understand is that th- this theater opens and it is it's it's the first of its kind. There is no storefront theater in Chicago, so let's start there. But no. then, like Edmund Hillary and his Sherpa are showing up at Second City. This is not. This is this is Life Magazine type stuff when Life Magazine was the thing. No. So of course we have to go to New York, no. um, but we go to Broadway, and I love the fact one of the main reasons it doesn't work, which is they don't let them improvise. Yes, Max Liebman, who you know in many ways was one of the great geniuses of American comedy. He uh, well the, the the first thing was. Uh, imp- improvising in a proscenium Broadway theater is it's just the wrong relationship with the audience. Yeah. It's not, it's not informal enough. It's not comfortable enough. Uh, but in those days, if it was important, it was going to New York and it was theater. It had to go to Broadway, you know, and uh, then they repositioned off Broadway and did fine for several years until, yeah. until I guess too many people got in Bernie's face and he said, Oh, the hell with it. They're being too annoying and closed it down. Which but is it, pretty much a reason. Yeah. But but it's the same thing with my, my friends who are, everybody forgets who I think were brilliant, uh, Monteith and Rand. Mm-hmm. John Monteith and Suzanne Rand were a sensation off Broadway. Mm-hmm. And James Lipton, who was the guy who ran inside the actor's studio on TV, decided he was going to be a producer. And he took them to Broadway and he put them into a format which they still were pretty good, but it wasn't like the conspiratorial party that you had with them off Broadway. Yeah. And you have to, it's not enough to have a, a, a gem. You have to have the right setting for the gem. Mm-hmm. A lot of people think, Oh, we've got a gem. This will work anywhere. No, some things don't work anywhere. You cannot put your good man, Charlie Brown up in the airy crown theater, you know, no, <laughs> it's not going to work. No, I mean, context is everything. By the way, does the Airy Crown Theater still exist? It does still exist. My friend, a friend of mine, just started working with them. But literally, yeah. I was literally on the website because for a while there, 
they were doing the, what, what I'd call the contemporary Chitlin circuit. Uh, so that was uh, Tyler Perry before um, he had his own facility in Atlanta would bring his, his show there and, and, and sell out and, but just, you know, but a different world as Chicago, as we know, Chicago uh, still, still is sadly to a certain degree, um, not completely. I mean, in the sense that, and this is interesting too, because you close your, this new edition or one of the last interviews with Keegan, Michael Key, a new interview, we just, for the, we, we had done outreach in, in, in all black company shows for, for a while. Um, and, but what we'd never done is give them a prime time slot. And so, uh, this past year we did our, what we call our black excellence show, which is called dance like black people are watching you. We gave it the primetime slot uh, in Up Comedy Club, and it sold out the entire run. The other thing this- is, this is this is something which occurred to me only recently, was the breakthrough wasn't when the first black performer appeared on Second City. I think the breakthrough came when you had two black performers on Second City, because sure. that meant that, uh, it meant that uh, you would uh, a black performer could talk to a black performer instead of representing themselves to the, to the white people who are on the rest of the stage. Yeah. It's, it's the same thing with women in the yeah. company. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It was always four and two, and until it was three and three, it, yeah. the dynamic was never going to work. I mean, if you go back and you have, you know, in the original company of Second City, you've got uh, two brilliant women. You've got Mina Kolb and Barbara Harris. As far as I've been able to see, there was never a final scene in the show that was just between the two of them. Yeah, no. No. So... You know, until you have multiple people who are representatives of a certain uh, segment of society, you're not going to have a dialogue between them so that you're not going to be able to hear what the private voices are on the stage. That's right. And increasingly, that becomes uh, hard uh, because for, for a variety of reasons with regard to we expand our notion of, of what it means to be different in society. And, and you go, you know, there's uh, Latino and there are Middle Eastern performers and they are um, uh, people with disabilities. And, and these people have found their way into Second City, but it's very, it's, and then it becomes hard to understudy them. And that these are all things that we have to figure out because the reality is, in my opinion, the the more diverse casts that have come out of Second City, the more interesting material you're getting because well this is fu- this is funny uh, because when you read your book, especially Compass in early Second City, it is such a Jewish theater. Oh and yeah, it is it is Jewish 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 and it is talking about their moms and and their experiences and analysis. And you know you're talking to an Irish Catholic boy and and it is just not a Jewish theater now. No, but it started off, and this is one of my theories that some people take issue with. I think that there was a comedy explosion in America in reaction to McCarthyism. I think if you take a look when, uh, and that it has its roots in the stories that their parents told them about the Cossacks, including my my grandparents ran from the Cossacks. Yeah. Yeah. that when uh, when uh, Joe McCarthy and uh, and Roy Cohn and a lot of these other people uh, were attacking communists to a large degree, it was an excuse to attack Jews. Mm-hmm. And at that time, take a look what comics come up in the wake of McCarthyism and what comic voices. It's not only you know Second City and Compass and Nichols and May and so forth. It's it's Mort Saul, it's Lenny Bruce, it's Tom Lehrer, it's mm-hmm. Jules Pfeiffer. You know, it's, mm-hmm. it's, and I don't think it's an accident. And I think that it started off with, um, 
the non-Jewish people being sort of the straight people in the show. It was Andrew Duncan and uh, Mina Kolb, who were sort of, you know. They were the odd person out. Yeah. And, Mina and, Kolb from Wilmette, Illinois, was the odd person out in that group. And, 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 and her obliviousness to what was going on around her was, was part of what was funny. And mm-hmm. her, her desire to understand was also funny. Going to a great books club to try to understand what all these smart Jews around her were reading and, and being, having a background that precluded her understanding half of what was said to her. And her confusion was part of what was possible. The other thing that was interesting was Andrew Duncan, who I think was much underestimated. And I'm furious that the goddamn New York Times didn't run an obit of him. I mean, that just drove me nuts. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't run an obit of John Monteith either, and that drove me nuts. Mm-hmm. But, but uh, Arkin said that, um, you know, at one point or another, everybody took a vacation, and uh, it was, uh, they said, oh, the show's going to die, the show's going to have trouble, blah, blah, blah. He says, the show never died or got into trouble until Andrew Duncan left. Mm-hmm. He said, you know, that the, 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 and I think what he meant was, you know, the wasp guy who was sort of the straight man who established a rebellion against which every uh, established, uh, uh, not a rebellion, uh, 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 sort of a, a base against which everybody yeah. could rebel. Yeah. Yeah. He says, that's when we fell apart. He says, and that's when we realized how valuable Andrew was that he established the reality that we could take off from. Yeah. Uh, well, that, that was a genius, I think, of Paul's too, both in terms of understanding ensemble. Uh, and then understanding and kind of creating the review format and that, that this is, this is the thing of when, when we teach directing here, it's really hard because really th- this theater was directed by like four guys for 25 years. <laughs> that was it. Um, and they'd been handed down this, this stuff. And, and one of those things that was so important is the running order, you know, the, the way that the scenes, you know, uh, stack up against each other. Um, and that is, and, and, and if you really want to understand that, you probably need to understand something about vaudeville. Yeah. And so that, so, so our teaching in terms of that is, has to go, goes back really far and it's, is is rather intense. I could actually talk to you forever and we're coming up on an hour, which is way longer than we normally do these, these, these conversations. Um, well, any, yeah. anyway, I, 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 which is to say, if any of this conversation has been interesting, there's a book that has way more stories and has some of the most fascinating people uh, in this. And it's a book which in its original edition, when it came out, everybody was still alive. And now, alas, it's a book in which I would guess three quarters of the people are no longer with us. So, yeah, no, I know. And I mean, and that that is but thank God we what we have. We have this, at least in terms of preserving their their thoughts, which are really um, I think you protect, you know, in terms of that, that they're able to say the things that they wanted to say, because this is this before I ask you for a yes and story. The the thing that I, I, I see in the book that just reminds me kind of why the perverted way, which I love working here, which is that uh it is so mistake ridden and, and, and people are so vulnerable and honest about their insecurity and, and their problems and that sort of thing. And I just feel like so many places where you go to work, no one will talk about the stuff that is actually important in your life because whether it's kvetching or, or share oversharing or, or what it is, but no one in this book does anything less than be completely honest 
even at the potential expense of their own <laughs> reputation or relationships with these other people. And you've been to the reunions and I've been to the reunions and like nothing's changed when, when they, when they were alive and together, they were still mad about the stuff that they were mad about before. Well, except one of the, one of the great surprises to me and something which I liked was that finally, finally Steinberg and Klein became friends. Yeah. There you go. You know, that, you know, after they were sniping at each other in my book and, 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 and Steinberg said, Oh, I think of second city as my asshole years. Yeah. <laughs> you yeah. know, mm-hmm. and then finally, you know, Steinberg has been doing these podcasts. He invites Klein on and uh, Steinberg says, I was rough on you. And Klein says, you were rough on me. And then they put mm-hmm. it aside. They have a, they have a swell time. It's like they thought, geez, we're past 60. We're yeah. Yeah. 70. Maybe we should put this aside and be adults finally. Yeah, yeah. You know, I thought, oh, it's like when I went to my high school reunion, two or three guys came up to me and apologized for beating me up 50 years ago. And I thought, well, this is nice. They've grown. How nice that they that, that this bothered them all this time that they should come up to me. They've grown. Yeah. Well, what, what I've, you know, what's really important to me in my time here, because I have a, you know, a relationship with Aretha Sills, Paul's. Paul's daughter, uh, Viola's granddaughter. And it's really important to me that we, you know, continue to honor Viola and her work and what that means. Um, and I know it's complicated, complicated for Carol and I, and I get that and I'm not, that's not going to be fixed. But, um, when we look down the line, you know, I think it's, it's, it's just important that that right story be told. Yeah. It was complicated even with between people that you think were thick as thieves. I mean, yeah. I- you know, I, I I stayed friendly with with Sills and with Mike Nichols, and I would I would occasionally hear them bitch about each other. They they were best friends. Well, same know. with Sheldon, right? I mean, this is like that's uh, the, Sheldon was one of my mentors and my wife's mentor, and you know uh, that that rift was never really you know fixed between him and Paul. Um, and you know who knows? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I remember that I I, went, I told Sheldon at one point I I had found some uh, tapes I'd forgotten about Del Close. I mean, with Del Close, I said, what should I do with him? He says, oh, I don't know. Burn them. <laughs> right. Well, they're all dead now. All right. We always have this podcast with a yes and story. I am absolutely sure that you have one. I, I do. And it's a, it's a theater story. Um, I, I started a group called the New York Writers Block, which was mostly uh, playwrights, actors, and directors working together, including some people with an uh, improv background. In fact, uh, uh, Jerry Stiller and Ann Mira and Mike and Bobby Gordon were members of this group. And at one point, I said to the um, to the playwrights, you would be better playwrights if you understood improv theory. Mm-hmm. And they said, okay. And we started meeting an extra time a week uh, where, uh, you know, uh, I was teaching what I knew Stiller and Mira were teaching Mark and Bobby were teaching. And at one point somebody said, Oh, I have an idea. Why don't we improvise to music? Let's put a record on and we'll improvise to music. Well, in my experience, improvising to music is, a, is, um, an invitation to glop mm-hmm. because people try to pick up the emotion in the music and it's, you know, and I thought I, I can't say no because you can't say no. What can you yet? How can you yes and this? And I said, yes and thinking very quickly, no scene can be more than six lines long because I didn't want the scenes to go on, become gelatinous and interminable. I said, each scene will be six lines long. Any one person can start a scene with any other person in the circle, but the scene can only be six lines long. And it, we put on a Jean Pierre Rampal record. I remember the record. Mm-hmm. You know, 
and we started improvising. And all of a sudden, it turned out this was extremely powerful. Yeah. And initially, they were just separate six-line scenes, and then people started remembering the characters and relationships that had been established. And by the end, we were doing Peyton Place in six lines. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and everybody went, whoa, what have we discovered? Turn the record over. Let's do another one. And we did another one. And it turned out that six lines became an exercise that we brought into the class uh, because we had uh, not the class, but the group. There were people there who were primarily there as actors and we were trying to get them to write. And we said, oh, come on, anybody can write six lines. And so at the beginning of each session, we had everybody, whether they were writer or not, write a six, bring in a six-line scene they wrote. And it turned out that a lot of the actors who brought, brought in a six-line scene realized that they were writers, and they became uh-huh. writers because of the six lines. So this came out of my wanting the improv not to be gelatinous and boring. It was just absolutely defensive. It was yes and, but it, we you know, came up with this six-line form, and I still sometimes use it and, and, and teach it. There are different ways of doing it. You can do six lines in which one person is in every scene, so you have a constellation of all the characters around them, or you can take a social event like a high school reunion or a wedding or a funeral and do six lines that way and build a, a network of uh, relationships of people who show up at the social event. It's a great way of researching new material. But it came out, it came out of not anything except to keep the, that afternoon from being boring. Yeah, well, and, and, and creativity desires constraints. And I think what people don't understand about improvisation is there's all these rules that, that the, people complain about, but I'm like, they're there for a reason. And they are there for a reason in terms of keeping you, you need some box to play in. You know, you, you, your empty space is still a space that is defined by certain area. Uh, and, and I think one of the huge mistakes that people uh, come in is, is thinking that is purely a, a mindset for anything, which it is in regard to where you are at the moment with the people you're in the theater in the moment with. Even when you're improvising jazz, you know, you have to know what key you're in and what the chord changes are. Yeah, and what that song was. Yep, yep. I love it. The book is called Something Wonderful Right Away. I highly recommend everyone get it. Jeffrey Sweet, thank you for coming on the podcast. Oh, it's been a treat. Getting to Yes And is produced by Second City Works and WGN Radio. Our editor is Iridian Fierro from WGN. We get support at the Second City from Colleen Fahey, Mike Farinaccio, and Emma Smith. The music you hear at the beginning and end of the show is by Jukebox the Ghost. For more information about the Second City, you can go to www.secondcity.com or you can email us directly at works at secondcity.com.
Bye.